the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, The Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Hislop, the best-selling author and lover of all things Mediterranean. Victoria's first book, The Island, came out in 2005 and became an immediate international bestseller. Her subsequent novels have explored the Spanish Civil War, Cyprus and the Greek islands, and she's celebrated for cleverly combining history, culture, family, time and place into fascinating stories. Her latest book, The Figurine, is out now, and it deals with the contentious subject of acquiring cultural treasures. Victoria, welcome to Table Talk. Oh, thank you for having me. It would be one thing bit more if we were sitting having a meal, but... Yes, no, that would be... <laughs> perhaps in Greece, which I'm sure we'll get onto at some point. Um, as listeners of this podcast know, we always start at the same place, which is a question of what were your... What are, rather, your earliest memories of food? In one word, it's mince, because that was a staple part of our diet. We, I was born in 1959, so my early childhood and school days were in the 60s and food was unbelievably plain when I look back on it I mean we didn't think of it as being plain we didn't know any different but you know Elizabeth David hadn't arrived in on my mother's bookshelf and or indeed on most people's so we were eating very plain Edwardian food and very much still post-war because my mother would have grown up with rationing and uh, my grandmother was an incredibly plain cook. So we, we were just part of this family tradition of very, very simple and um, uncomplicated food. And the same at school. You know, our school meals were meat of some kind, potatoes, mashed or boiled, and very overcooked vegetable either carrots or cabbage. So those are really absolutely, probably from about age five, I remember eating a lot of that. And what were mealtimes like in your family? Well, we always sat and had supper together. Um, My grandmother lived with us. So it was myself, my sister, my mother and my grandmother. And my father didn't get home till very late in the evening, so he wasn't there for supper. And we could tell what day of the week it was. On Mondays, it was always something made with the leftovers from the Sunday roast. So that was usually some kind of shepherd's pie because it was minced up, whatever hadn't been eaten on Sunday. We actually ate quite a lot of offal because I think it was very cheap. My mother didn't have a huge amount of what was in those days called housekeeping money Um, so we often had heart and we often had liver and I remember the most dreaded day of the week was when we had tripe which I still can't even stand the sight of so mealtimes were they were they were functional I mean they were 45 minutes seated together you know eating food and you we weren't allowed to 
turn anything down or say, oh, I don't want to eat this or I don't like it. That just would never have occurred to us. So we had to have clean plates. And there was always a pudding, always two courses, whether it was jelly or apple pie or some kind of trifle. But, you know, main course and then a pudding every night for my first, I suppose, 18 years until I left home. And when you were, was it 12, your your mother became involved with a restaurant in Tunbridge. Can you tell us about that and, and, and what effect that had on food at home as well? Or, I mean, were you dining in the restaurant? That was a revolution in every way um, in our family because the restaurant was French and my mother, it goes right through the sort of length and and width of the whole family in that my mother was having a relationship um, with a very charismatic, talented French chef. And that obviously turned our lives inside out in many ways, (laughs) Um, one of which was food. And for the first time, we were eating things flavoured with garlic. And until I was 12 years old, you know, I had never tasted garlic. You know, there were always onions in very English, British cuisine. Everything had onions to try and give it more flavour, um, even that horrible mince. But garlic was just mind... It was it was taste bud blowing, basically. And I started going to the restaurant that they had together to help the chef, you know, weekends and in school holidays when I was about 14... So I was learning actually how you make a sauce, you know, which is to reduce and reduce and reduce. So I knew everything had to have a a proper stock that wasn't just a stock cube. You know, I didn't even know such a thing as stock without a stock cube existed. I can't tell you how many elements of of food and cooking that I was suddenly faced, faced with. And And these incredible flavours. Because Michel came from a family of chefs and he had left school at, I think, even 12 years old to go and work in the kitchen. So he was a really professional, a professional chef. And he had worked in a big uh, stately home for quite a few years in Kent, where I was growing up before opening a restaurant. He passionately loved food and I learnt to love it in a completely new way because it tasted <laughs> of, of garlic by the sounds of it. it. Tasted of garlic, but it also tasted of sauces that were, you know, laced with wine. You know, I'd never seen anybody put wine in a sauce. You know, it sounds incredible now because it seems such a daily a day-to-day natural activity, but you know, a, a coco vin made that's been where the meat's been marinated in in wine you know maybe overnight is very different from the taste of a chicken that's just been roasted you know a crab beast made with you know fish stock and then brandy and fresh cream I mean all these things I can't even conjure up in words how thrilling I found them Mm. and and it's like I'd never really eaten anything before did you find that that introduction to French food 
via the restaurant inspired an interest in food from other cuisines and other cultures more generally? Um, Yes. I mean, obviously, as soon as you step outside the realms of, you know, early 60s, um, almost nursery food into this realm that includes herbs, spices, dashes of alcohol and rich stock, you know, you're into a whole, it's like coming out of a cupboard into the into the bright sunshine. And, you know, when I started to travel a little bit, you know, I, I discovered Italian food. And, you know, during the 60s, there was a food revolution beginning to happen. But I think for me, French food probably remains a favourite because I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of variety with what they cook and how they cook it and the pride with which I think the French and the importance that they give to food as well that I'm not sure that um, I've discovered anywhere else. So, yeah, from a, there's, in my food life, it's before I was 12 and after I was 12. <laughs> And just taking you back, well, to your university days, what you, you studied English at St Hilda's at Oxford. What what are your memories of food and drink during that period? I'm actually quite good because at St Hilda's we had this great system. We had a very very good rowing team. I wasn't part of it, but it meant that the portions that people that you got at um, college meals were always very generous and because it was an all-girls college there were always masses of fantastic salads so it was very healthy Um, and I think I ate very well when I was at university you know there was no great incentive to cook so and it was a great meeting very social thing Mm. so it was an important part of of those three years yeah I mean I don't remember anything particularly gastronomic but it was all extremely well cooked and um, as I say very generous amounts. And and you met your husband in Hislop at Oxford I mean do you remember being wined and dined during that period? Well funnily enough our first ever meeting was at a formal hall um, at Teddy Hall which was the college very close to Maudlin and very close to St Hilda's where I was and we were invited by a very good mutual friend who's still one of our very best friends to one of these kind of Sunday evening you know formals where you had to wear your academic gown and sort of sit at long um, dressel tables. I sort of remember it was a rather sloppy kind of a roast because that's usually what got served up on a Sunday night really overcooked meat and gravy that my French sort of stepfather figure would would have rejected horrid gravy and boy it was a bit more like school food is how I remember that meal <laughs> it, was, it was where we met over a, a slightly mediocre Oxford dinner <laughs> and in your early days of your career um, I assume living in London what what are your memories of that period was was that the first time you sort of got to experience sort of obviously you'd experienced the restaurant with your your mother yeah. but were there other restaurants that you sort of started to go to at that point yeah we used to go out and eat a lot you know given given that we weren't earning that much money that's what our money went on we used to go there were, in those days lots of 
sort of Italian trattoria. There was one in Soho now that we used to go to very frequently called Topogigio. And it was all like, you know, the big pepper mills where they used to kind of approach your table with this thing like a cannon to kind of put pepper on your spaghetti with great kind of flourish. It was always really good fun. And those sort of flaming Sambuca things that you always used to get at the end of a meal and veal, which I hadn't really eaten that much and I don't really eat it anymore. But going out to eat was a special thing, but we did it an awful lot. That was our kind of entertainment more than anything else. And tell me about Greece and how you've come to love that country and, and particularly the food. What What is it that draws you to it as a place? Well, as a place, funnily enough, when I think about Greece, there are lovely kind of scents that come to my mind as much as sights. And, you know, the scent really is, is oregano and wild thyme. You know, for me, particularly Crete, where I go a lot and, and have a house, um, that, you know, the whole of Crete to me smells of these lovely herbs that kind of make me hungry. I went there first time in the late 70s as a teenager and then continued to go every year since then and you know food is really a big part of going to Greece you know it's not something that you it's not in a way special to go out to a taverna it's a very day-to-day thing because it is still incredibly cheap compared with going out in any other country in Italy or France or the UK, you know, you, you would never go out seven times a week. But in, in Greece, from that first visit and right up to now, we usually go out to eat every day. And a very average bill, um, even a few weeks ago when I was there, for a carafe, this is per person, as much wine as you really can and should drink, you know, in some of the places that are our favourites in the mountains, it's about 15 euros for a really more than you can eat. And they always give you free dessert and there's always free little meze before you begin. So it's still a paradise of eating out. And I love that because it is part of, of a Greek holiday is to enjoy someone else's cooking. So, yes, I'd say for about £12, you can still eat really not like a king, but in a very simple and very healthy way. Mm. So it's an important aspect of Greece for me. And, and you really have embraced Greek culture, not not only becoming a Greek citizen, but you were also on Dancing with the Stars, the Greek version of the TV programme. Tell, tell me about that. What was that like? Oh, it, was, it was absolutely extraordinary in every way and in every extreme way it was both wonderful and terrible all at once I was constantly on this kind of roller coaster of feeling intensely happy and then intensely sort of unhappy and in pain feeling inadequate and like the extremes and the only thing that I tried to do during the whole 10 week period that I was there was actually to eat properly because I had to maintain my kind of nutrition because I'd never done anything so physical in all my life. And I was, I I didn't wear one of those sort of horrible watches that measure your steps all the time. But if I had 
warm one, I should think it was probably about thirty or forty thousand a day practicing, practicing, practicing all day, every day. And I used to get very hungry and had very little time. So I used to make sure that I ate properly because for me, if I'm lacking in nutrition, I, I get very ratty, you know, and I can't cope emotionally. Quite often, if I'm feeling upset, I think, actually, I'm not really upset. I just need something to eat, you know, something nutritious. I need some good cheese and, you know, some lovely soda bread or something just to raise my sort of blood sugar a little. It was a great experience. I think the only time in my life when Mm. I've eaten masses and lost weight, even so. So that was quite fun. I think most women quite like the idea of that um, because it's almost impossible to kind of keep up with the calories. My partner was a vegan, interestingly, and very strict vegan. I used to go to a vegan shop. There was a little vegan kind of supermarket near me, fortunately, in Athens, and buy him lots of vegan snacks and this amazing pasta that was made out of chickpeas. So I used to eat a lot of pasta, but quite a lot of it made from other other things than flour and made sauces and made, you know, unusually for me, made a whole batch of that and would have it in the fridge so that when I got back at night, I could just throw all this into my mouth and um, top up my calories. And I could always tell when my dance partner was hungry because he was often, I like the expression, there's no better word than hangry. After two hours of dancing, he used to get really cross with me if I made a mistake. And I used to just go to my bag, get out one of my vegan snacks and say, can you please eat this? Because I think that will make our rehearsal better. I discovered the joys of um, vegan snack bars during Dance <laughs> Stars. And let's talk about your novels. When you I mean your your books are known for their ability to capture a sense of place and time. When you're researching a novel, how do you go about doing it and, and how important is food and drink and, and knowing about the sort of food and drink of the time period you're writing about? How important is that for for being able to do so? Yeah, I think it is very the food aspects of sort of family life in Crete, which is quite often what I'm writing about is really important and the regionality of food as well. When I wrote The Island, I think maybe I was more extreme then. The parts of it that I wrote when I was sitting in my study in England, I always ate tomatoes with oregano, olive oil and this thing that's sort of made out of a dry rusk. And I thought if I eat this every day then I'm going to imagine I'm in in Crete and I think I'm less strict than I was about that because maybe I spend more time actually writing in Greece but um, yeah food is important and and I always have somewhere in the writing not kind of in an artificial way but I always have let's say the older ladies cooking the kind of things that they would have cooked in whatever period I'm writing about it and in the figurine, the protagonist spends some time in Kalamata, in the Peloponnese, and um, they have some very specific uh, dishes in the Peloponnese. Um, so that's what we have her being served in a restaurant. 
because every region has specialities that are to some extent dictated by you know the geography of that region so they've you know they'll be if you're inland you'll always have a more more meat um if you're in a mountainous area it's much more likely to be goat and if you're by the sea it will be fish and that's simply the you know dictated by by the topography and by what people have always eaten there and a lot of greek food is very vegetarian because i am on the whole a vegetarian these days and a lot of greek food is made from pulses which back in the 50s and 40s and 30s were the food of poverty essentially mm. many of their even their most tasty dishes they've evolved because people couldn't eat meat every day they didn't have the money for meat so they made a lot of interesting things with with vegetables and lentils and chickpeas and black-eyed peas and all those things that we now think are quite kind of trendy these days and when you're writing do you are there any sort of specific routines that you follow or anything you you mentioned the tomatoes but are there because sort of certain rituals that you'll do throughout the day to keep keep you yourself focused yeah the main ritual is coffee first always drink a lot of coffee usually three cups in the morning and then I always bring back from Greece lots of mountain tea um, which are kind of herbs picked and mixed up which makes a really nice tea in the afternoon it's very healthy very good for the stomach so apart from what I drink, no particular routines really, apart from trying to be at my desk by quarter to nine. As soon as it gets to nine, then suddenly it's 10 o'clock. I don't know what happens to that hour, but that's the fastest hour of any day. That's true. That's very true. I'm always at my desk before nine, because then I feel I get an extra hour. It doesn't sort of run away with me. And I'm a really passionate about Greek wine you know there are some wonderful Greek wines around now coming gradually into our supermarkets and they're much easier to get the very dry whites from Greece I absolutely love so probably better if I didn't like them then I wouldn't drink (laughs) (laughs) And, and at home what what do you tend to call I mean who does tend to cook for your family what what sorts of dishes do you your go-tos surprise surprise it's me um in fact it's always me ian has made spaghetti bolognese in the 40 years that i've known him he's made it twice (laughs) so that's once every 20 years makes spaghetti bolognese and it's very good he's got his own special recipe i don't know if he's lost it um i think because of the time i spent working in that restaurant kitchen I can do the food prep incredibly quickly. You know, I can chop a carrot or an onion or anything, courgette, name anything that needs to be chopped. I'm very proud of my chopping techniques and friends comment on them. They go, oh, my God, didn't know you could do that as the knife is kind of vibrating faster than you can see it. So I can make a really tasty dish incredibly quickly let me give you an example. Mm. Last week, I bought some fresh haddock. I made a sauce with obviously white wine and some shallots, which are a big favourite of mine. The sweetness of a shallot is just gorgeous. Shallot 
creme fraiche, threw some samphire on it, threw the lid on the, the pan and some white wine and it was sort of poaching away nicely, sautéed some courgettes and then we had some uh, white flageolet because I didn't want potatoes and the combination of the fish and the flageolet beans, they were from a tin so already cooked and the samphire and the courgettes with a little sprinkling of oregano and Frankly, I'm going to tell you I had a meal the night before. Somebody took me out for a seven-course taster meal, for which was £195 a head, without the wine, that was just the food. I'd say what I cooked gave me infinitely more pleasure, and I'd had to get up in the middle of the night mm. the previous night after the £195 a head meal to have some toast, because I was so hungry. <laughs> I actually think I'm quite a good fast cook. Sounds delicious. That recipe sounds really yummy. It's what I had, you know, samphire, mm. essential ingredient with fish, and it mm. looked so lovely, fresh or a little bit steamed. You, you know, raw. Anyhow, you 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 may have just actually answered my next question, but perhaps not. Which is what? what we we like to ask what your comfort food is. Is, is your comfort food toast, or is is there something else that you tend to? No, I'm, I always try, because actually wheat bread, normal bread, just makes me fall asleep. So toast in the middle of the night is good, because then I just go straight back to sleep. It's like a sleeping pill. My comfort food is anything with pulses. I just love the texture of lentils. There's always a bowl of lentils in the fridge, because you can do so many things with them. Hot, cold... Any, anything. I mean, I just think they're the most wonderful, wholesome, nutritious and lovely bit of roughage. So I would say, weirdly, lentils are probably my ultimate comfort food. Lentil soup on a cold winter's day or lentil salad mm. on a hot day. What's not to love about the lentil? <laughs> and do you have a sweet tooth? Is there anything that you particularly like? Um, funny enough, I'm really, I'm one of those annoying people that often order the cheese instead of a pudding and I don't really have a sweet tooth if I ever buy chocolate I buy are you allowed brand names I buy a bounty yeah, yeah no, of course <laughs> go extreme and I have a bounty um but I'll only eat one of the two bars and then put one of them away for later I'm I'm not a chocoholic and I don't love puddings because a lot of them have eggs in them so much eggs are used in the making of a dessert, whether it's a moussey thing or a spongy thing. Mm, is that because is, are you do you not like eggs or? Yeah, I'm I'm sort of intolerant to eggs. Right. My body doesn't like eggs, so I'm much happier with a really good piece of cheese mm. than a sort of ten tier chocolate gatto any day. What's your What's your go to cheese if you had to pick? Oh, I think it's a. Very hard Greek cheese called Graviera, which is a little bit like a Greek equivalent of Parmesan, mm. um, not quite so dry, but it's very sort of hard and salty. And a slither of that is, is a for me, a great end to a meal. And it goes with coffee, weirdly. So it's, it's a good um, meal ender. Well, talking of meal enders, our final question, Victoria, is always... Um... We've never quite worked out quite how to frame it. It's sort of what's your desert island meal slash death row meal, but we think death row sounds a bit morbid. <laughs> but basically, what would be your ultimate meal? 
and you can choose on a desert island oh well i think can i have more than one course yeah of course and you can have something to drink (laughs) let's go for three courses then i would like sea urchin salad i know they are slightly illegal in some places sea urchins to to eat but i think if i was on a desert island and they were spread on the rocks all around me then i would make myself a sea urchin salad because it's just the most delicious pure thing it's a little bit like eating fresh oysters you know there is nothing more sort of tasty and and wholesome in some strange way so i'd love a sea a bowl of sea urchins and then i would have a lentil salad made with feta and beetroot, slightly warm, with lots of balsamic vinegar and coriander, finely chopped. I'd have the lentils with me because I'd have rescued them from the sinking ship. Across the Pacific Ocean trip, you would take with you dried lentils. I probably hoped that there were bananas on the desert island because I do think (laughs) I would miss bananas if I couldn't have them. They're such an infinitely varied fruit and I quite like them cooked with some brown sugar and rum and a squeeze of orange juice. Sounds delicious. Yeah, that to me is a perfect pudding. Mm. And they would be rum on the desert island because some old <laughs> pirates would have left rum, I think. <laughs> I like how authentic that desert island meal was. Well, Victoria, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. And Victoria's latest book, The Figurine, is out now. Thank you for joining us on The Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to The Spectator website. (laughs) 